Let me welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Greetings, welcome. I invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Uh, we're, t- we're hitting the pause button on our Second Timothy series. We will, of course, return to it after the Christmas season. Uh, but this passage that we're looking at today is one of the great meditations on the glory of the Son of God, and particularly, this is appropriate this time of year, His incarnation, His coming to us as a man. And that's where we are going today. So Philippians 2, 1 through 11, let's hear God's word together. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are gathered here today because you set aside your heavenly glory and splendor and entered into this dark world of pain and suffering. We are here today because you became one of us and humbled yourself even to the point of dying in our place, standing condemned for our trespasses. Lord Jesus, we give you praise and thanks for coming to us for suffering in our place that we might be cleansed of all unrighteousness and reconciled to God. Lord Jesus, as we meditate this morning on the humility that you exhibited in your coming to us, we pray, Lord, that we would be convicted of our self-centeredness. We pray that we would find healing and forgiveness in you, and we pray that we would be transformed and increasingly transformed to walk in the humility that you yourself exhibited in the incarnation. Teach us, Lord, to be selfless, to lay down our lives for others, even as you laid down your life for us. Amen. This time of year, we celebrate the coming of the Son of God to us as one of us, an act that we describe as the incarnation, the union of the divine and human in the person of Jesus. And uh, we rejoice in the incarnation, 
uh, because it is an act of salvation. It is because God comes to us, God the Son becomes man, uh, that we experience salvation and the forgiveness of sins. So the incarnation is an act of salvation, but we should also recognize the incarnation is an act of revelation. As we look at the Son of God taking on human nature, becoming one of us, we learn something profound about the character of God. We see the radical selflessness of God, the other-oriented nature of God. We We see his expansive nature that reaches out in love towards others. And it is this humility that we see in the Son manifest in the incarnation, that is the antidote to our selfishness, self-centeredness. The first word we learn is mom, but the second word we learn is mine, right? From from the very beginning, nobody has to teach us how how to pursue our own interest, how to passionately pursue what we want at all costs, even great misery to others. That's what we do by nature. And we do it by nature because we are fallen and we are sinners. Our souls have withered up. They have shriveled up. Like the Grinch, our hearts are two sizes too small. Uh, We were made to reflect God. We were made in his image. We were made to consistently live on the principle of emptying ourselves for others, to give. But in our fallenness, our consistent posture towards others and towards life is to take. How how are we freed from the prison of self? Well, we are freed, this passage says, by being transformed by Jesus Christ, by being changed by his humility exhibited in the incarnation and in, in his work for us. So we'll look at three things as we consider this passage today. First, humility unites us. Humility unites us. Second, Christ's humility guides us. Christ's humility guides us. That is, it is the pattern for us to follow. And third, Christ's exaltation drives us. His exaltation drives us. Central to this passage is verse 2, where Paul invites the Philippians, and by implication us, to walk in unity, to walk in relational harmony. It's one aspect of unity, but also be, to be united in a common purpose, to be committed to Christ and working out his will in the context of the community and contending for the gospel in the world. So he is inviting in verse 2 the Philippians and us to be relationally united and united in our obedience to Jesus, to be of one mind, to be at peace with one another. But for us to experience the kind of unity that he calls us to in verse 2, We have to experience the realities in verse 1. It's the experience of Christ's encouragement, uh, the comfort of God's love, participation in the Spirit. It is these things that provide the foundation for the church's unity. So if we're going to relate to one another harmoniously the way God would have us, we need to experience the things in verse 1. And by the way, when he says, if... It may sound like he speaks of these things as a mere possibility, if there is any encouragement. Perhaps there is, perhaps there isn't. But it's better to understand what Paul is saying here as a presupposition. If there is any encouragement in Christ, and of course there is, then the following is true. 
Paul speaks of encouragement in Christ, being emboldened and strengthened in our relationship with Jesus. As we draw on on the resources that we have in Jesus, we are emboldened, we take heart to live the way that we ought to live. As we contemplate the love of God, and that's the love that is in view here, uh, we are comforted, we are consoled. It's probably a reference to God the Father, even though that isn't explicit. Uh, We have a reference to Christ, and then we have a reference to the Holy Spirit, and then probably sandwiched in between those is a reference to God the Father. One of the most consoling things in all of our suffering is to recognize that God the Father loves us. It's a radical statement. God the Father loves us. And Paul says, when you bask in that love, when you know it, it provides healing and comfort in the midst of life's troubles. If there's any participation in the Spirit, to trust in Jesus, to be forgiven of your sins and have a relationship with God, also means that the life of God is in you. God, the Holy Spirit, indwells the people of God. And we are spiritually connected to Jesus. And because we're spiritually connected to Jesus, we're spiritually connected to one another. The Spirit binds us together in one spiritual organism that we call the church. And it is because of this fundamental spiritual unity brought about by the Holy Spirit that we have a shot at real unity. This is the supernatural reality that undergirds our quest for unity as a church. Uh, Why why do we think we can realistically pursue a life of unity and forgiveness and love and sacrificial service? Because God the Holy Spirit dwells in us and knits our hearts together. And as we pursue unity, and that's sometimes difficult, and relational harmony, we need to continuously go back to this fundamental fact. God the Holy Spirit is himself working in our midst to make us a united people for the glory of God. And that strengthens us and gives us hope. But notice the logic between verse 1 and verse 2. We can have the kinds of relationships with one another that God wants us to have as we have the kind of relationship with God that we ought to have. In other words, the quality of your relationship with God affects your relationship to your brothers and sisters. As you bask in his love and are encouraged in your walk with Jesus, you are going to be able to be at peace with fellow believers. You are going to be able to be united with them. Uh, Maybe one of the reasons we haven't made more progress in those very difficult relationships in our lives, the ones that cause us uh, great pain, that weigh on us, maybe one one of the problems is that we focus narrowly just on that relationship. Maybe we need to give more time and attention to our relationship with God. And as we are transformed by his love for us, as we are encouraged by Jesus Christ, maybe we will become the kinds of people who can experience a relational breakthrough. But the, the the quality of our relationship with one another depends on our relationship with Jesus. As we draw encouragement and strength from him, we will experience unity with one another. So verse two, Paul calls us, to a unity of purpose and a relational unity. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same mindset. Uh, Paul is not saying that there can't be a difference of opinion among us. That's not what he's getting at in verse 2. We are not a cult. There is, 
The church is not a cult. There's, cons- there's considerable legitimate uh, diversity of opinion that can exist among God's people. On the main things, we, you know, we share a commitment to Jesus and a commitment to the truth of the gospel and the essentials of the Christian faith. But within the parameters of the truth, there's room for diversity and differences of opinion. And we can still be united because of what we share in Jesus Christ. So Paul's not talking about Uh, a mindless uniformity where we all say the same thing. He's talking about a unity grounded in a shared commitment to Jesus. And this unity, harmonious relationships among us, is precious to God and it should be precious to us. God wants us to be a people committed not simply to the truth, but a people committed to one another. A people who uh, who know how to forgive one another, who know how to live life together in peace. And uh, this, this isn't just going to happen. This has to be a priority. This is something that we have to actively pursue, something we pray for, something that we consider in the things we say and don't say and the things we do and don't do. We need to consider, is what I am doing now contrib- contributing to the unity of the church or to the dysfunction of the church? And similarly, we need to recognize that unity is hard. Uh, we need to get rid of maybe sentimental, unrealistic, and unbiblical expectations about unity. Uh, As we see in this passage, unity requires self-surrender, self-renunciation, putting others first. Uh, It's that which makes unity and community possible. But living at peace with one another, following Jesus with one mind, is what God wills for the church. It is what he desires, and therefore it's what should be a priority for us. In our engagement with other believers, are we promoting the unity of the body? So how can we experience this full accord, this being of one mind? Well, Paul tells us in verses 3 and 4 that we experience this as we walk in humility. And as Paul defines humility in these verses, humility is essentially self-renunciation, selflessness, a concern for others. So negatively, he says, humility means doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Selfish ambition is what we noted earlier, that single-minded commitment to getting what you want, getting what you desire even at the expense of other people. Uh, that's what, that's what this uh, selfish ambition refers to. Conceit is empty glory. In essence, thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think, having an overly inflated opinion of yourself. Negatively, humility is the opposite of that. Paul is here describing that selfishness, self-centeredness that is such an essential part of our condition. When uh, the company that you work for makes a decision, what's your first thought? How will it impact me? We don't think about the company, we don't think about the coworkers. Our first question is, what does this mean for me? When you look at a picture, what's the first face you look for? Admit it. Uh, when, when your sick spouse comes to you and says, hey, I've caught a cold. I need to lie down. What's the first thought that runs through your mind? Ideally, it would be, oh, yeah, by all means, go rest, I'll take care of it, be be well. More often than not, what would this mean for me? 
You know, what slack do I now have to pick up as a result of this? It's the self. That's the lens by which we look at everything, right? Shapes everything. Your kid misbehaves. What are you worried about? How will this make me look to other people? What you're not worried about is, uh, what does this say about the condition of my child's soul? The self is the lens by which we look at the world. We think of everything in terms of me and how it affects me. And if we are going to experience unity, Paul says, we need to turn from that way of thinking and that way of living, selfish ambition and conceit. Instead of that, we need to walk in humility. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That doesn't mean, by the way, that you tell yourselves uh, lies. Tell yourself that you are worse than you actually are, less competent than you actually are, and tell yourself lies about other people that they are better than they actually are and more competent than they actually are. That's not what it means to consider others as more significant than yourselves, as the context makes clear. To consider others more significant simply means that just the way you take care of yourself and try to enhance life for yourself and make things good for yourself, do that for other people. In fact, do it more for other people. Just as when you move, you want help and you ask for help, uh, you are naturally committed to your well-being, do the same thing for other people. Offer to help them. Consider not just how you can enhance life for you, for you, but how you can do that for other people. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. There's the Christian life in a nutshell. You want a good summary of the Christian life? Look at verse 4. Look not only to your own interests, but the interests of others. We try to make life good for ourselves in a thousand ways. Fine but do that for other people and do it more. To follow Jesus means that you empty yourself to fill others, you spend yourself to strengthen other people. This is the Christian life. To be committed to the interests of others simply means noticing the needs around you and taking initiative to meet them. So when you see those new parents, parents for the first time, and they look like that oil spot in the driveway, utterly exhausted, um, offer to babysit, bring them dinner. When you see that someone has faithfully served in a ministry for years, offer to fill in for a period of time to give them a breather. When you see that someone isn't connecting relationally at church, you know, sitting by themselves afterward, wanting to engage, but uh, not really able to, go say hello, connect with them, sit by them, get to know them, invite them over for dinner. Uh, someone's marriage is struggling, commit to praying for them. Day after day until you see God work and bring healing. Uh, That's what it means to consider the interests of others, to take note of all the needs. The world is full of needs. Observe them, note them, and then wisely and prayerfully take initiative to meet those needs in a way that's consistent with your calling and gifting and circumstances. Yes, all of those things. But notice the needs and then do what Jesus did. Meet those needs through sacrificial service. Uh, There's a little short story called Ministering Angels, and it is about a meteorologist who decides to go on an expedition to Mars. And he doesn't decide to go to Mars, and by the way, this, this expedition is three years long, significant slab of time. But he doesn't go to Mars primarily because he's interested in Mars and learning about Mars. He goes to Mars because he wants to work on his soul. He wants the silence and solitude of the howling wasteland that is Mars. He feels the need to get away from the clutter and the noise of life on Earth, 
I think something we can sympathize with. Um, and, and so he goes to Mars for the purpose of his spiritual exercises, <clears throat> for the purpose of getting closer to God. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> and uh, when he gets to Mars and he engages in his spiritual exercises, uh, he thinks that he's been brought there only to work on himself. But God has a different plan, and there in Mars, he comes across a very needy individual who requ requires his spiritual care. And the man chuckles at the end of the story and realizes that he thought he was going there to focus on self, <laughs> to get closer to God. And God brought him to Mars so he can minister to an individual he couldn't have ministered to in any other way. And at the end of the story, the character says to himself, in prayer. Oh, master, he murmured, forgive, or can you enjoy my absurdity also? I had been supposing you sent me on a voyage of 40 million miles merely for my own spiritual convenience. <clears throat> now, that's often how we are. Our focus is on self, and it could even be a good thing, like I want to grow spiritually, but so often self is the center and God's plan is often to disrupt our agenda for self-improvement and self-enhancement and put us in positions where we can bless others and minister to others. Maybe that's one of the reasons we feel this friction between what we want and what God wants. So often what we want is self-focused. How can I make life better for myself? And what God wants for us is to make us his instruments to be a blessing to other people. And when we recognize that, we will stop viewing people perhaps as interruptions and disruptions and view them as divinely given opportunities to bless others the way that we have been blessed. But this is the Christian life, a readiness to put others first, to empty ourselves so they can be filled. And why is that the essence of the Christian life? Because that was the essence of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a transition here from the practical uh, to the incarnation, but notice that this exalted description of Jesus is meant to serve a very practical purpose. It is meant to transform our hearts as we see the beauty of Christ and provide a pattern for us to follow. Paul says that this mind, this humility that he has just been describing, ought to be exhibited in our community, and we have this mindset in Christ Jesus. In other words, as we walk with him, as we draw on him, we learn to walk in humility, in selflessness, in service to others. And then he goes on to say that this is what supremely defined Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. When he writes form of God, we should not think that form simply means outward appearance without the essential attributes or substance. That is not what Paul means. Uh, the word does convey the idea of external characteristics, but it doesn't exclude the idea of substance. In other words, when Paul says that Jesus was in the form of God, he's not simply saying that he looked like God but wasn't God. He is assigning to Jesus full divinity. And we can see that very clearly because of the context, because in the very next clause, he speaks of the equality with God that the Son possessed. So form of God, 
uh, doesn't suggest that Jesus was something less than God. It is a way of talking about his full divinity. One New Testament scholar says the word means that which truly characterizes a given reality. <clears throat> so a form of God, not less than God, but a way of talking about the full divinity of Jesus. And notice, this is, we, we need to pause here. We need, to, we need to reflect on this. He didn't think, even though he had the majesty, supremacy, and exalted nature of God, even though all of that was true, the Son of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, he didn't consider his divinity as something to be grasped at and used for his own benefit. He didn't think of his divine supremacy as something to use for his own advantage. This is staggering, because what do we do as human beings? Why do we seek power and influence and prestige? To enhance whose life? Ours. But God is radically different from that. The Son of God was equal to God, glory, majesty, nature, but he didn't think of his divinity as a way of avoiding pain and suffering. Didn't think about using his divine privileges for himself. Instead, his divinity was an, was an opportunity to serve others, to put the interests of others first, as Paul goes on to describe he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. It doesn't mean that he emptied himself of his divinity. When the Son of God became a human being, he did not cease to be God. He became fully man without ceasing to be God. No, he emptied himself in the sense that he radically humbled himself. How did he radically empty himself and humble himself? Get ready for it. How did he lower himself to an infinite degree? By becoming one of us. He humbled himself by becoming a human being. That infinite gulf that separates the creator from his creatures was bridged by the incarnation. Jesus became one of us. And he came among us as a servant. Taking the form of a servant. He came uh, to live his life on the principle of enhancing the lives of others, even at great cost to himself. Mark 10 says that the Son of Man didn't come into the world to be served, but to serve. And what characterized Jesus' life? He went, he went around doing good, uh, giving sight to the blind, bringing cleansing, uh, cleansing to the lepers, liberating those who were under demonic influence and preaching good news to the afflicted and brokenhearted. Jesus was among us as a servant who consistently considered not his own interests, but the interests of others. He was born in the likeness of men and found in human form. Again, likeness shouldn't be understood to suggest that Jesus uh, fell short of taking our full humanity. Paul uses that word in Romans 8, for instance, uh, to, to, to say Jesus is fully human except that he's not a sinner. So he's completely like us in terms of our humanity, but he is unlike us in terms of his moral condition. 
Again, we shouldn't understand this to suggest that he became something less than one of us. The Son of God became a human being. The eternal God, who has no beginning, was born as a little baby. God, who knows all things, had to learn how to speak in Jesus. God, who has power and strength and vitality and is overflowing with energy and life, becomes weak and weary and needs to sleep, according to his human nature. St. Augustine, in one of his sermons, captures this paradox. He writes, Man's maker was made man, that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. It's the paradox of the incarnation. The eternal, the infinite, becomes one of us. He descends into the dark depths of human experience and existence. But he doesn't simply humble himself in the incarnation. He continues to empty himself. He continues to go lower and lower. Being found in human form, he humbled himself again by becoming obedient to the point of death. God cannot die, but Jesus Christ, according to his human nature, died. Experience the impotence, the weakness of death. And not just any death, but even death on a cross, the death of a common criminal. To the ancient Romans, to the ancient world, this was uh, one of the most horrible fates that a human being could endure. They shuddered to think about crucifixion. It was an instrument not just of execution, but of torture. And the ancient statesman and lawyer Cicero writes, to bind a Roman citizen is a crime. To flog him is an abomination. To slay him is almost an act of murder. To crucify is what? There is no fitting word that can possibly describe so horrible a deed. But when God becomes man, that is precisely his fate. He doesn't simply die, but he is crucified for our sins. So when you step back from this passage and you ask the question, what is God like? What does the incarnation reveal about God? What do we see? Well, we see that it is the nature of God to take what he has and give it away to others. It is the nature of God to empty himself and empty himself and give and give until he has nothing left to give. He gives and he gives until we are full and happy and blessed and forgiven. God who possesses everything freely gives it away that we might experience forgiveness and life and reconciliation to God. There are no depths to which God will not go to redeem his fallen creation and his fallen humanity. Again, this is so counterintuitive. We think from a human standpoint, that part of the glory of God and part of what would be great about being divine is that you are insulated from this dark world of suffering and pain. You are outside it and above it. But the staggering truth is that God, who made everything and is glorious and infinite, freely chose to set aside his divine rights 
and enter into this world of pain and suffering for us. What's the response to this? Well, the first response is worship. We need to be freshly amazed that this is who God is, and we need to stand silent in his presence and then burst forth in adoration. Second thing we need to do is repent. We need to repent of all unworthy thoughts about God. To the extent that there lingers in our hearts the suspicion that God is stingy and reluctant to bestow his gifts upon us. Our thoughts are not worthy of him. They show a certain contempt for God. If God gave his son, and if his son gave his life, and God gave and gave, we need to be absolutely confident, absolutely certain, that in absolutely everything God brings into our life, he is 100% committed to our good. Do you believe that? Even in, those, even in those places where there seems to be a setback, where things don't go as we would want them to be, that is not a hiccup in God's faithfulness. It is a part of God's faithfulness. And to, to the extent that we have in our hearts perhaps a frustration with God or suspect that he isn't as generous as we need to be, this passage calls us to repent of that ungodly attitude. And finally, Christ's humility calls us to a life of humble service to others. Just what we've been saying in verse 4. What is the Christian life? The Christian life is the same pattern that we see in Jesus. We take what we have and we give it up for others. We take what we've been given and we yield it again and again to enhance the lives of others. That's the path that Christ walked. That's the path that we are called to walk. Where are those places in your life where love of self is prevailing? Where in your home, in the workplace, in the church, do you need to increasingly die to self and serve others? That's what the example of Christ calls us to. Then Paul transitions from the humiliation of Jesus Christ, his descent into the depths in his incarnation and crucifixion, and he moves from that great descent back up. He who descended to the lowest point of humiliation and suffering was exalted by God to the highest status as Lord of all. On the other side of his crucifixion and death, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. On the other side of the humiliation of Jesus, there is an exaltation the Son of God reigns in glory and power and splendor at the right hand of God. He has supreme sovereignty and authority over the world. And it was God's good pleasure to exalt him. Notice the purpose, verse 10. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. It was the Father's good pleasure to exalt his Son that all of creation, angels and humans would together, as one chorus, sing the praises of Jesus. Make no mistake, nothing less than worship is being described here. The, it is the Father's intention that the Son should receive the adoration and the worship that belongs to God. Here we see where human history is going. Currently, not every knee is bowing and not every tongue is confessing. But Paul is here describing a certainty and inevitability. One day, all will bow and all will confess that he is Lord. God's people will do so with joy and gladness. 
rejoicing in the kingship of Jesus, and his enemies will do so grudgingly. But grudgingly or willingly, all of creation will one day acknowledge that Jesus is Lord over all and give him the honor that is his due. That's where everything is going. And and that means that it, it is the church's mission to call the world to acknowledge and submit to this reality. If Jesus is reigning, if all things will one day be in complete submission to him, then the church's mission is to call the world to acknowledge that reality, to repent of sin, to trust in Jesus as Savior, and submit to his authority as king. And then having been brought under his royal rule, it's the church's mission to teach people how to live under the authority of Jesus, under, if if I can put it this way, under new management. Church's job is to teach people how to live under the rule of Jesus. We speak a lot at CBC of disciple-making, and rightly so. To follow Jesus is to help other people follow Jesus. But one way to think about disciple-making is you're helping someone else increasingly realize the implications of Christ's lordship in their life. At conversion, we call people to recognize that Jesus is Lord and submit to his rule. And then on the other side of conversion, we help them work out the implications of his lordship in everyday life. Think through the implications of his lordship for their money, for their marriage, for the way they raise kids, and so on. Uh, Disciple-making involves helping people live out the reality that Paul describes in this passage more and more. And central to honoring our king and living under his rule is doing what verse 4 says. How do we honor our Lord, who is now exalted and reigning and will triumph at the end of the age? How do we worship him, not simply with our lips on Sunday, but with our lives day after day? How do we do that? How do we say to Jesus, this much, Lord, I worship you, love you, and revere you? The answer is verse 4. We demonstrate our devotion to the king, our reverence for the king, our love for the king, by increasingly turning from a self-centered life and putting the interests of others ahead of our own again and again and again. Are you bringing glory to the king by living for others? When we disciple others and form them and help them to follow Jesus, at the heart of that is teaching them to be less selfish and more considerate of others. Are we bringing honor to Jesus by living in this way? And as we do, we discover one of the great secrets of the Christian life. Those who empty themselves to fill others find that they are full. Those who give and give and give find that they have far more abundantly than they could have ever thought. Hoarding, clasping, seizing doesn't work. The myopic pursuit of self-interest doesn't work. It leads to a diminished, sad, pathetic life. But those who follow in the steps of the Savior and cheerfully fling life away and do good to others know what it means to live. And thereby they bring glory to their king and follow in the footsteps of Jesus. So during the season when we consider the ultimate act of giving, the giving of the Son of God, pause and consider where you are not giving and where you need to be challenged by Christ to be more like him. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess our selfishness to you, but so often what we are concerned about ourselves. 
Oh, Lord, grant us to walk in the joyful path of service to others. Grant us to do so more and more. Grant that that would increasingly define our community for your glory and our good, Lord. Amen.